Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just turned four o'clock and it is time for Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett. And as usual, I'll be here until six this evening. Today, Dr. Alison Brunowski and why Julian Assange must be supported. An update on Sri Lanka with another doctor, Brian Sinwaratna. The Axis of Resistance with yet another, Tim Anderson. The ISDS component of trade agreements, efforts to remove it with Peter Murphy. And 10 years after the massacre, which ended the Sri Lankan Civil War with Tamil researcher Umush. But first, Mr Kevin Healy and his week that was. A week, Jane Lister, when I hope I get through this without succumbing to the nausea I was suffering all week as the best we forget trained killer warriors forget to forget as people whose job is to kill people were paraded as national heroes as we were told yet again our true blue Aussie values apparently are based on, were honed on a military disaster invading other people's country after landing in the wrong spot. Although if we're invading other people's country on the orders of our current military master Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country then, the US of the UN of the US of the world now, then is there a right place to land. Still good to know our values are invasion, disastrous mistakes and the slaughter of millions. It it explains a lot. On the right place to land, Big Supremo scuttled them more less son, never one to miss an opportunity to display his sincerity, told all these train killers in Townsville our train killers had fought for right. And in that we'd have to agree with him and haven't the right made sure we never forget the critical role the merchants of death play and must continue to play that role while extracting trillions from the public purse. So we can enjoy the freedoms of health, education, transport, housing, welfare and all those other services if only we could afford to provide them adequately because we must finance that absolute necessity the merchants of death and the mindless train killers. And Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo Little Billy Shorten Ambition got into the spirit of true blue Aussie values up in Darwin, which is sort of de facto US of territory, by telling us the freedoms we enjoy are down to that military disaster on the wrong beach. And in Canberra, at the ever-expanding true blue Aussie train killer memorial, the big train killer who represents Her Most Gracious Majesty, Peter Kors Graves, told us for the 110,472nd time since he got the gig just how much he loves a bit of trained killing and the good news is his imminent replacement is another big trained killer who just loves a bit of trained killing showing we are maintaining our great true blue Aussie values bitter worrying perfidy though from one supporter of train killing who said in a letter to the editor despite his love of train killing that after 105 years maybe just maybe it is time to forget to let go 105 years ago that would have been the firing squad 
And the media also proudly presented these children aged from 6 to 10 in military uniforms with the true blue Aussie slouched hat. The same media that is thankful we don't brainwash dear little children like the evil commies do. Oh, let's move on. The nausea is overwhelming. The same media which will flood us with mass coverage of May Day, now but eight hours away, give or take. Little Billy's commitment to the evil unions which formed the Socialist Party to provide a worker and union voice in the parliamentary process is proceeding apace with his latest commitment to the caring business class that he would give it the tools to have profitable, productive, successful enterprises and he would not be beholden to the evil unions. Let's hope the caring employers don't fall for that three-card trick because little Billy would never, never sell out the unions and workers. But good to see little Billy getting into the spirit of the International Workers' Day by promising to pick up the wages bill for childcare caring employers. And the socialists say they won't rule out paying the wages for workers in other, mainly female, low-paid occupations. Picking up their wage bill is one obvious tool to have profitable, productive, successful enterprises. What a clever way to shore up the caring employer's vote, who may have feared that rather than picking up their wages bill, the socialists might have supported the greedy, avaricious, evil unions in seeking wage increases, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it, paid by these workers' caring employers. Caring employers so care for their lazy, avaricious workers, they too got into the May Day celebrations, pointing out that little Billy's promise to restore the penalty rates taken from workers by scuttled them and the team would destroy the delicate flower that is the economy. Remember when the penalty rates were removed, caring employers and the government assured us the impact on workers' wages would be minimal. They'd hardly notice. And the caring employers could caring employ lots more workers and pay those workers lots more. An equation we had a bit of trouble comprehending, but they know it. They know what they're doing. We, we wouldn't doubt their word. Well, the True Blue Aussie Retailers Profits Association and its deeply sincere concern over Little Billy's rash promise warned their wages bill would increase by up to 21% if the lost penalty rates were restored. But but surely that doesn't mean the minimal impact for workers the, they'd hardly notice was a 21% decrease in wages? Surely. Must be some mathematical calculation that has minimal impact in one direction and maximum impact in the other. One worry in this electoral excitement is, following that election of a comic actor in Ukraine, 70% of the vote without having one policy other than winning, let's hope listener scuttle them and the little, little Billy don't get the burst of inspiration and think perhaps they should start cracking a few jokes. It would make it even more unbearable. They're already such a bundle of laughs as it is. Although a bit of advice to little Billy, and I don't mean to be bodious, but after talking a bit of train killing with the train killers in Darwin, he turned up at the footy in Melbourne, being photographed with Collingwood giant Mason Cox. From the US I've in Darwin to the US I've in Melbourne, but Cox so towered above the socialist dynamo, they almost needed a mobile phone each to hear each other. Although we can imagine the conversation would have been so in-depth, it wouldn't have mattered whether they could hear each other or not. 
Little Billy was lucky he didn't warrant an invite to the AFL's corporate food and grog do. Sorry, apologies. What a disgrace to call what they'd be drinking grog and what they'd be eating mere food. But lucky, because heaps of the big end of town invitees at Hangers On came down with food poisoning. Whereas Scuttle Them and Little Billy are just poisoning the news cycles and will continue to do so for several more weeks, leaving us, as I said last week, in autumnal election hibernation. We commented last week as Scuttle then displayed his soft, compassionate side. Well, he would argue it's both sides and centre. It's the real love thy neighbour, dear baby Jesus, him. Anyway, displayed as he shed tears over the slaughter of Sri Lankan Christians that perhaps he could shed a few over those fleeing persecution, mostly Tamils, he has sent back to the persecution or, or locked up for life in PNG or Nauru. Well, this week he has shown he is a man of compassion, cutting back True Blue Aussie's immigration cap to resounding applause from his party faithful, but, and here's the compassionate bit, cutting back immigration, he said, to help migrants. Those already here would be better off, he argued. Not sure of the logic, but perhaps the new ones who don't, who now won't get here wouldn't be around to take their jobs, because that's what migrants, and especially no proper papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people migrants do. They take our jobs. The new figure, he said, includes the humanitarian intake. So clearly scuttle them, the soft, cuddly, compassionate scuttle them, regards the no proper papers lot, including those he returns to that they are fleeing, as the non-humanitarian non-intake. If only they could share his compassion and stop trying to embarrass him and, and trying to embarrass little Billy and his lot as well. Aspiring big supremo Clive Parmagina said that little Billy was not morally fit to be big supremo but of course if not morally fit is a criterion we'd never have a big supremo given the one notion creep who got sprung in the US of seeking trillions from the rifle slaughter association and with a stripper while making misogynistic remarks will still be number one on the one notion ticket even though he's done the resignation thing while expressing his deeply deeply sincere sorrow that he got sprung we assume Clive will preference him high up on Clive's ticket because Clive must find him morally fit. Well, that lot all deserve each other. Speaking of morally fit, of the products emerging from the government pork factory in the past past year, 272 million of infrastructure handouts went to marginal government seats while 54 million, one-fifth, went to marginal socialist seats. All that shows, of course, is there is obviously much more need in marginal government seats, but perhaps they should think through some of the largesse, because 244 million, almost a quarter of total government spending in this area, went to Indi, held by an independent who won it off one of our former favourites, Sophie Mora Bellicos. Because surely these smart voters will say, this shows it pays to have an independent. Finally, as we suffered the saturation coverage last week of train killing and true blue Aussie values and freedoms, this week, as I said, we can expect saturation coverage of May Day, of workers' interests, mass promotion of the May Day march, international May Day coverage, and photos of dear little children wearing union badges and waving union banners. Can't wait. Good afternoon. And that was Mr. Kevin Healy. 
Dr. Alison Brynowski, AM, is a former Australian diplomat and is working with the Be Sure on War campaign to change the war powers of the Australian government. Today her concern is Julian Assange, now languishing in a cell in a London high-security jail for breaching his bail in 2012. Talking about Julian Allison, enemy of the state or a hero exposing corruption through WikiLeaks, can we go back 12, 13 years to the beginnings of WikiLeaks when the exposure to corruptions worldwide began? The focus on the leaking of US diplomatic cables beginning in 2010 has crowded out those previous corruption exposures and also US interference in Latin American countries. Can you talk about that earlier period? Really, he began operations of the modern kind in about 2007-8 when he started looking into cases of corruption, particularly by British banks and various international companies affecting places in Africa and so on, and illegal dumping of waste and all sorts of things like that. And he gradually began putting this information out on the internet. And out of that came the foundation of WikiLeaks because people began leaking stuff to him that he could put up there. Now, you could understand that from the very beginning, doing that sort of thing frightened the pants off a number of governments and companies who might have bad consciences about that sort of operation. So they were watching him carefully from the start, but he kept getting good material and putting it out, and people were noticing, and he started getting people signing up to look at WikiLeaks and so on, and getting invited to foreign countries like Sweden, which at the time prided itself on hosting free internet communications of all sorts and was sort of a hub for such things. And in 2010, he got the leak from, as we didn't know at the time, but later turned out to be from Bradley Manning, now Chelsea Manning, because she had been working for the U.S. Army and she was disgusted with what she saw and she just saw the opportunity to pass this material to Julian. So from 2010, he was in the gun with the US government and a number of other governments, particularly the ones in the Five Eyes countries, which include Australia, because they all think alike and their intelligence operators all talk to each other all the time in what they call a community of shared ideas, and they all think that anything that is bad for the national security of one is bad for national security of all. So they were convinced from the very start that Julian was, as the Americans were happy to say, a traitor, all this sort of thing. Although how you can be a traitor to the United States when you're an Australian and you don't even live in the United States is another matter. But that was what they did. And there were American congressmen and others who called for his execution, including Hillary Clinton. And they just ran a hate campaign and decided at that very time that they would get him. And we know this because a former CIA man actually stated that sooner or later, they would get him and knock him off. That, he said, is what is done all the time. And what would happen to him would be the same kind of fate as they accused the Russians of doing to various 
troublesome journalists and so on. In other words, there's no difference really in the behaviour of the United States, the Russians who they attack and other governments. And of course it's not only Julian, he's just the face. There's so many other people involved. Yes, WikiLeaks became quite a large organisation and still is. They started out in Iceland and then in Sweden, as I said, and they had a lot of very dedicated people working for them. They also started to get a lot of donations. And one of the things that the Americans did early on after those leaks was to try and prevent funds reaching WikiLeaks from people who wanted to donate to it by stopping MasterCard and Visa and so on and American Express from transferring money to WikiLeaks accounts. Now, I haven't heard in recent times what happened to that, but obviously WikiLeaks is still getting money from somewhere because they're still employing people. And even while he was in the embassy of Ecuador and his internet cut off 2018, they were still obviously able to operate and were still producing stuff all the time. When and why did the relationship with Sweden turn sour? Julian was in the country for some conferences and it was midsummer and, you know, young Swedes, if you've ever been in the, the Nordic countries in summer, everybody goes a little bit feral. The sun is up all night and they have lobster parties and all this sort of stuff and, and have a good time. Well, that was what Julian was doing. And he went to the apartments of a couple of women who he met at various places on separate occasions. One of them, it appears was in fact set up as what the, the spies call a honey trap to catch him if she could. And in Sweden, as you probably know, they have extremely liberal laws about rape and sexual violence and all this sort of thing. And, and you know, the very slightest thing can be called sexual violence. Not that I'm condoning it as people do it, but Julian denied it. The accusations were badly handled by the, Ameri by the Swedish police who first said there was nothing to accuse him of, then said there was, then said there wasn't. And Julian hung around in Sweden waiting for something to happen and nothing did. So he went to England and he had planned to do. And then, from what we know now, the Brits got on to the Swedes and said, Look, you've got to pursue him and you've got to get this man and we want him and you don't let him go. And kept uh, harassing the Swedes. We have seen emails uh, about this uh, for a long time. The Swedish legal team were being told by British lawyers that they mustn't let up on Julian's case. So it dragged on and dragged on. He was, first of all, living with people who offered him accommodation in England for a year or more, all the time saying that he was willing to speak to the Swedish authorities at any time, but he would not go to Sweden because he knew perfectly well from what has happened to other people. He had a record of extraditing people to the United States during the early days of the post-9-11 years. He didn't want that to happen to him. He knew perfectly well from what he saw on the inside what could happen. He kept saying that he was willing to speak to Swedish prosecutors, and they have done that in other cases, but they refused to go to England to interview him. He was then arrested by British government, or, or rather a warrant was issued for his arrest, and there'd been a hearing, and while he was on bail for that, he decided that at the moment had come to get himself out of British authorities, and that's why he went to the embassy of Ecuador, where the president, Correa, at the time, had been very sympathetic to WikiLeaks, said that any time he needed help, he could get it, and so 
Julian took advantage of that and did, with the consequences that you see, that he remained in the embassy for seven years while the British were still trying desperately to get him out, spending millions of dollars on security and legal things and, and so on, for what you might think was a little bit of a nothing, because he was not, in fact, accused of any in Sweden or anywhere else. He simply had a case against him in Sweden, which was eventually dropped by the Swedes, who said, look, you know, we just don't want to pursue this any longer. In the meantime, the UN Human Rights Commission investigated his case and said that he appeared to be guilty of nothing and that he had been falsely accused and that the governments involved should make sure that he received his liberty as soon as possible. Now, this is where it gets interesting because the Australian government has done precious little for Julian. During the time that he was in the embassy of Ecuador, there were some efforts made at consular contact, but certainly nothing that we could make out that represented political representation uh, to either the Swedish government, the American government, or the British government. Not surprising, because Australian political leaders, including Julia Gillard, were very quick to condemn him and say that he deserved everything that was coming through him and words that effect, which meant that their hands were tied because they'd already taken a political position on Julian's case. Reason for that being, as I said before, that they didn't like Australia's with the United States being revealed in those cables or anything else that happened after, because what happened later were the WikiLeaks revelations about the Democrat National Committee in the United States during the 2016 electoral campaign. That didn't make him any more popular. And in fact, because the Democrats were doing what we now know they were doing with that issue, Julian was a real pain for them because, as usual, he was not saying who his sources were. He said explicitly that his sources were not the Russian state. That doesn't mean it wasn't an individual Russian, but we don't and he won't say because, unlike some journalists, doesn't reveal his sources. And he is a journalist and he is a publisher. Those things are a big problems for Julian. I must say, he made life worse for himself while he was in the embassy of Ecuador because after Correa was replaced as president by his former deputy, the new president uh, changed his political attitudes radically and clearly didn't want Julian in the embassy any longer and wanted also very clearly to make himself and his country much closer to the United States than Korea had done. As well as that, he got a reward, a huge donation, shall we say, or, or concessional loan from the International Monetary Fund for Ecuador. We now find that he was putting a lot of money of his own into an offshore bank account run by his brother. WikiLeaks finds this out and publishes it, which you might say is independent journalism without fear or favour, but it certainly did Julian no good when this was published. And the president of Ecuador from that time was fiercely opposed to Julian and was step by step taking every measure he could to make life difficult for Julian, both in the embassy by cutting off his email and internet and, and visitors, plus accusing him of all kinds of petty and nasty things publicly, which is what you do want to demonize somebody's character. I might just add that what we do know, an awful lot of people know because for years we've been given a drip feed on this, is what a nasty person he is. In other words, if you can't get him for what he's actually done, then get him 
for his nasty character and unpleasant habits. And that is what has been done as concerted campaign of Slee's character assassination against Julian. Now, I've never met him and I don't know or care personal habits of no interest to me. What I'm interested in is the fact that when somebody like him tells the truth about what certain governments are doing, they are embarrassed and they turn on him. Well, what we've got to remember in all of this, Alison, is that Julian is an Australian citizen. Yep, we certainly do. And thank you for raising that because this is the point I wanted to reach. In recent times, the Australian government has a fund, it has a term about sort of overseas legal assistance or something like that. I've forgotten the exact title. But out of that comes quite a lot of money for people who find themselves in desperate situations overseas, like a convicted pedophile in Thailand or a journalist in Egypt or another journalist that was also in Thailand. These people, Cresta, of course, was the, the one in Egypt, but these people get a lot of help, not only with finance for their legal costs, but also with representations from ministers. And you'll remember that convicted drug traffickers in Indonesia had so much riding on their case from Australian ministers who pleaded with the Indonesian government to do what it could, while saying all the time the Indonesian legal system had to do what it had to, there were endless effort put into supporting these people. Chappelle Corbyn, for instance, to get her out and get her home, and the other convicted drug traffickers. Now, in the case of, of Julian, apart from, as I said earlier, a bit of consular inquiry, nothing, as far as money is concerned, nothing, and no effort that we know about to make representations to the British government to get him out of Britain and out of jail and sent back to Australia. In the case of David Hicks, he was sent to Guantanamo Bay where he was for years until political pressure on John Howard made it essential just before an election for Howard to go to the American government and say, look, if you get him to sign a guilty plea, we'll take him back, we'll put him in jail in Australia for the rest of his sentence, whatever that is, because he was never tried for anything nor sentenced for anything. We will take him back. Sorry, when I said he wasn't sentenced, he was because he pleaded guilty to crimes that, that in fact were not crimes when he was supposed to have committed them, but that was a whole other matter. Anyway, David Hicks gets sent back to Australia with great effort by the Australian government. And Julian, by comparison, the case is quite different, it seems. What disturbs me is that Peter Grester is not in there supporting Julian. Yeah, I was surprised by that because I would have thought that Peter Grester not only knows what journalism is, but has been through the experience himself and would have a different view from what he was uh, reported to have expressed the other day. I was really surprised and I, I'm not too sure whether Peter Grester fully understands the situation. If he thinks that what Julian does is, what, espionage or something, rather than journalism, then he doesn't realise that what the New York Times does, what the Washington Post does, and what every other newspaper will do if it possibly can, is publish leaked material, is look for whistleblowers wherever they can find them, get whatever it is that they want to say, check it out, and then publish it. 
and people split hairs over what WikiLeaks and Julian have done about, well, how much did he redact? How carefully did he vet this material? Did he care about if it damaged some spy's career in some other country? Would somebody get killed as a result of his revelations? The fact is that we know of nobody who has lost their life as a result of the 2010 revelations. None at all. There was one American ambassador in Latin America who had to leave his post because what <laughs> WikiLeaks revealed was that he had reported negatively on the government to which he was accredited, and when that was published, they were embarrassed. Well, that happens all the time. If ambassadors do that and, and lose their job, it's not like losing their life. They just go back to Washington and get another job. But the suggestion which Peter Grester implies that Julian has somehow been irresponsible in what he published reveals a, a, a bit of a worry for me about the nature of journalism these days. And I think that what we're going to see is a division down the middle between the kinds of people who publish online, like Julian does, and the people who publish so-called respectable mainstream media, electronic or paper publications, because these are people who didn't get the big scoops, who are jealous, who are angry with Julian for getting it when they didn't get it, and they take great pleasure in piling on him when they can because he is absolutely unable to respond. It really seems to me that that's another reason why the Australian public and government ought to be protecting Julian, who is guilty of nothing. But didn't the English Guardian also have the stories, but then they turned against Julian? Yeah, they did. And what happened when he got the 2010 leaks was he very carefully talked to he decided the best way to get them out was not on the WikiLeaks site, but out in the newspapers. So he talked to half a dozen newspapers, including The Guardian, and did all kinds of deals with them about how much was going to be published, when it was going to be published, and so on. The newspapers themselves went through the material for their own very good reasons and culled what they thought they should, withheld certain things so that they would be published later and all of those sorts of tricks that newspapers do perfectly legitimately. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But Julian doesn't like manipulation. He thought that they were double-crossing him because there were various agreements they'd come to which the newspapers didn't uphold. They published before they said they would. They did all these kinds of things, trying to beat each other to the scoop, of course. And for that reason, some of the journalists in the Guardian fell out with Julian but there's a lot more to it I think and that is that they wanted to be the stars themselves and the best way for them to do that is to um, throw mud at Julian and say what a, a nasty antipodean slob he is and things like that just the same do you remember uh, as they did with Paul Keating when he ventured to put a, a hostly hand <laughs> around the Queen and they said he was lower than a lizard. <laughs> I mean, this is the kind of quality of British journalism that you expect when former colonials are involved. They pile on. They love it. They can't wait to appeal to the hubris of the British population. Bring us to the present, and we've got Julian in a cell in a maximum security prison in London. 
Charged with what? Charged with nothing. He broke his bail. That's the penalty. The magistrate, by the way, chose to characterise him rudely in the court in a way that I would have thought was prejudicial, but that's what he did. And the fact is, for breaking your bail, which he did, the maximum penalty is a year in prison. Now, Julian, therefore, has a year to fight off extradition to the United States. The British, some, for reasons I can't explain, have apparently reopened the issue with Sweden and have been trying to get the Swedes to reopen the case. I don't think the Swedes will. I think the Swedes are right over it and don't want to have anything further to do with it. It was embarrassing for them in the first place and it'll be worse the second time round, particularly if the pressure for extradition then comes on to Sweden, which I imagine is why the British want that to happen, because they don't want to be the ones who agree to extradition of Julian to the United States. There's another reason there too. That is, if the British were asked or told by the Americans to agree to extradition for Julian, the British would then have a legal problem, which is that their law says that they can't extradite a person to a country that has the death penalty. Clearly, although what Julian is accused of in the United States by the grand jury is a relatively minor matter, once they got him there, they would accuse him of espionage, which is a major matter. And so that the charge on which he was originally extradited would change. And that's what people suspect the Americans want to do. The Brits may get around this by saying, well, the charge on which he's to be extradited doesn't carry the death penalty. And that's true. But just extraditing him to a country that has the death penalty, I think, poses a legal problem for Britain. But surely to keep him in a maximum security prison with 24-hour surveillance for the minor crime of skipping bail, how many other people would get a sentence like that? Nobody. It's clearly disproportionate and I would think that his lawyers in London are challenging that right now. I'd be surprised if they were not. The amount of prejudice that has already been loaded up on this case would make it very difficult, I would think, for Julian uh, to get a fair hearing in court. If a court had the courage to defy all of that and say, look, this man's case has been prejudiced from day one and there's no way that he can be, it can be properly dealt with, even by the comments of the magistrate who's put him there, then he really ought to be released. But I don't see that happening because there's so much political pressure loaded on this thing. Mind you, at the same time, there are other things that are going on between the British government and the Americans because we now know that what MI6 did was they sent information last year to the CIA about the Skripal business saying that uh, these ducks in the pond in uh, Salisbury uh, had all died from Novichok poisoning and that children who'd been feeding the ducks were all sick. Now, Skripal and his daughter fed the ducks. They gave, <laughs> it's hilarious, they gave a piece of bread to one of the boys to throw to the ducks and he ate it 
and he's not sick, and there are no dead ducks. The children are fine. Only the scripals got affected. So it was not the bread that gave them Novichok, if indeed it was Novichok at all. But the fact that this information was passed by MI6 to the CIA and the head of the CIA, Gina Haspel, took it to Trump in 2018, June or July, and said to Trump, this is what they have done. You've got to expel 60 Russian diplomats because the Russians have done this in Salisbury to Skripal and his daughter, and Trump did it. This was a lie. It was a lie by MI6 to the CIA, and it was a lie by the head of the CIA to the president. And this is scandalous. So you see where the British have got form. And if they will do that, you can only imagine what a peanut it would be to extradite Julian. Finally, Alison, what to be done? Public pressure in Australia, I think, is the only way to go, as happened in the case of David Hicks. David Hicks's character was also traduced all over the place. I don't have any brief one way or the other for what kind of person David Hicks is, nor Julian. That's not the point. This is an individual Australian citizen who, whose case is clearly a failure of justice, and yet the Australian government is doing less for him than they do for convicted drug traffickers and pedophiles. So what happened with David Hicks was enormous pressure just before an election on John Howard, and he did it. There is a campaign going which Philip Adams started on the ABC, and it's collecting heaps and heaps of signatures. There's a petition, and you can fund it online. I've done so and so of lots of my friends. And this is the only way to get change, and that's how it was done in Hicks's case, and I think that's how it should be done in Assange's case. What is the webpage? If you just look up Philip Adams' petition. Okay, well, thank you so much, Alison. Hey, it's a pleasure. And that's Dr. Alison Bronowski talking about um, the disgrace of the treatment of Julian Assange in Britain. It's 4.37, and this is 3CR. My name is Ian Ham, and I'm the chair of the Healing Foundation's Stolen Generations Reference Group. At three weeks of age, I was separated from my birth family, and even though they lived just 50 kilometres away, I never knew they existed. I never met my mum, and it pains me to this day. There are thousands of Aboriginal people just like me, and our stories have never been heard. These stories form the basis of Australia's first Stolen Generations resource kit for schools. To download the kit, go to healingfoundation.org.au. A 3CR supporter. For his assessment of the situation in Sri Lanka, the country of his birth, I spoke earlier today with human rights activist of more than 60 years, Dr Brian Sinwaratna. I haven't got a lot to tell you, but what I have to tell you is important. Mr Sirisena, the president, or President Sirisena, was apprised of this nearly a fortnight before the bombings. To be exact, on the 11th of April and again on the 16th of April, the head of the State Intelligence Service told Sirisena that there was a bombing that was highly likely. What did Sirisena do with this information? He packed his bags and that of his family and left for a holiday in Singapore. Four days later, the Indians called the 
head of security services and said, we would like to remind you again that a bombing is imminent. The officer, that the head of the state intelligence service, called Sirisena in Singapore and told him, look, there is a bombing that is imminent and you will have to inform defense people and the police. He did nothing. Now, he says that he was not informed. That's a downright lie. He was informed, not on one occasion, but on three occasions, and did not do anything. In typical fashion, he's now blaming the Ministry of Defense and the head of the police for not informing him. They are just scapegoats. The Secretary of Defense has already resigned, and I think the head of the police has been sacked. All told, I think that Sisena is not fit to be the president. And if the Sri Lankans re-elect Sisena, they need their head seeing too. From our point of view, that the uh, expatriates and others from outside Sri Lanka, <clears throat> all I can say is that they should avoid Sri Lanka because it is an unstable country where your own security is at stake. Uh, they are expecting another uh, bombing and certainly more violence. And with uh, the extreme Islam group who have taken responsibility for this and the extremist Buddhist monks who are as violent as this lot, I think the outlook for Sri Lanka is becoming poor by the day. Where the Tamils in the north and east are concerned, they are my main concern. And they are going to remain under the military in a military stroke police state. That may well be un unconstitutional because there is nothing in the constitution to enable the establishment of a police state or military state in any part of the country. If Sirisena goes, Rajapaksa comes back. He will, for sure, because there is no other. And that, that will really be the end of Sri Lanka. With all this bombing and carnage, what does Rajapaksa do? He heads uh, to the scene of the bombings and blames the government. I mean, he may well be right, but this is not the time to do it. I think Sirisen is gone. He's not going to win uh, election, that's for sure. He's trying to get into bed with Rajapaksa so that they will uh, be friends uh, as before. And that's the only way that he can remain as president. But even that is not going to work. I think Sirisen has gone, so is because uh, Singh as the prime minister. And I think uh, into the vacant shoes will surely be uh, Mr. Rajapaksa and nobody else. The only other person that I can think of is uh, the former army commander, Sir Fonseca, who I think a couple of days ago blasted both the government as well as the opposition with negligence. So I guess he might stand, but after what happened to him last time, uh, he ended up in jail uh, because uh, he lost to Rajapaksa, and Rajapaksa stripped him of all his medals and put him into jail. He is about the only other guy. Chandrika Kumatunga is, I think, far too intelligent to come forward as president. She's not going to do it. Her children are in the United States, and she spends six months in Sri Lanka and six months in England. She, she is too intelligent to come forward as president. What did Sirisena think, do you believe, 
by ignoring uh, this? Question before that is to ask the question, does Sirisena think? And <laughs> I have my doubts. You see, for a start, Sirisena is not competent in English. That is the reason why he sacked the prime minister, which the constitution doesn't allow him to do. And you might ask him, has he read the constitution? You see, it's important to know that all the laws in Sri Lanka are written in English, even today, and then translated into Sinhalese and Tamil. Nineteenth Amendment to the Constitution was written in English and translated into Sinhalese, and since Sinsera can't read English, he can read only the Sinhalese translation, which was not accurate. So he took on himself the ability to do things that the Constitution doesn't allow him to do. And the Supreme Court had to uh, rule that he was acting unconstitutionally. Uh, he had to sack Mahindra Rajapaksa, whom he had illegally appointed as Prime Minister, and then reinstall uh, Vikram Singh. I don't think the two are still talking to each other. I don't want to sound pessimistic, but I think Sri Lanka is a lost cause. And if Rajapaksa comes back, it will be a lost cause. Uh, I mean, a leopard doesn't change his spots. And if Rajapaksa comes back, I think it's uh, a Human Rights Watch or one of these international human rights agencies said it will send a dreadful signal uh, to the rest of the world. Actually, I don't think Sinisena thought that it would be a minor uh, clash. Again, I go back to the same thing that I said. The question is, does Sinisena think? And does he think straight? And I don't think he does. Yeah. I mean, he is a village schoolboy. He was educated in a village with no secondary education in a major uh, school in a place called Polonarua, which is miles from Colombo. He is a village schoolboy and has remained a village schoolboy. That's all there is to it. I mean, I'm not being insulting. I'm just stating a matter of fact. In fact, he himself said that he couldn't cope with the presidency and that he was thinking of resigning and returning to his hometown in Polonarua. And I think that that's about the most intelligent thing that he has said in the past three years or something that he had been president. He is not fit to be a president, and he knows that. The issue, Brian, of the fact that two-thirds of the huge security forces of Sri Lanka are in the north and that maybe if they hadn't all been in the north, something mightn't have happened. I'm actually, I've just written an article on this, a copy of which will be sent to you when it is completed. Sri Lanka's armed forces is larger than the armed forces one and a half times as large as the armed forces of the UK. It's larger than the armed forces of France, Israel, Saudi Arabia, which has got, God knows, enough of armed forces. Uh, the figures are published internationally. I'm not making it up, but uh, Sri Lanka has enormous armed force, about four-fifths of whom are in the north and the east, in the Tamil areas. The question is, the Tamil Tigers have been crushed. Then what is the security forces? Who are the security forces securing? 
They're securing the North and the East. But the Tamils are not going to run away with the North and the East. They are there to make some money. And that's what they are doing. They've got into trade, industry, the lot. And the Tamil people there have got nothing to exist on. They can't do any agriculture because the land has been taken by the military. They can't do any fishing because the, the seashore is taken by the military. They can't get into industry because that is in competition to the army, and the army has said, no, you can't. We can do the industry. What are you going to do? He said, you can do what you would like, but you can't do any industry. You can't fish. You can't do any agriculture. They will gradually die, be wiped off. But the most significant and most important point that uh, everybody, especially the people in Sri Lanka, have to appreciate, that the Tamil people in the north and the east are being replaced by the government with Sinhalese from the south. new word has to be uh, coined. It's called Sinhalization. That is, making Tamil areas into Sinhalese areas, so that the country will be a singular Buddhist nation. Yes, but if those soldiers had been in the south, maybe the Islamists wouldn't have been quite prepared to do what they did? Yes. Uh, I think it is Sirisena who said, uh, it was Rajapatsa who said, you want the uh, armed forces dismantled or removed from the north and the east, where do I send them? And my answer is, you don't send them anywhere. You just get them into civilian clothes and get them to do a job of work, which is not what's happening. I, I think the whole thing is all nonsense. But from the point of view of your listeners, I would strongly urge that they give Sri Lanka a miss. If you want surf, sun, and sand, you can find many safe places, such as uh, there's Indonesia, there's Fiji, there's uh, Thailand. There are many places with sea and sand. You don't need to go to a place where you don't know whether the next will be a bomb blast. Quite true. That's Dr. Brian Sigmaretna speaking to me this morning from Brisbane. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. The phrase axis of evil was first used by U.S. President G.W. Bush in his State of the Union address in January 2009 to describe, as he said, foreign governments that, during his administration, sponsored terrorism and sought weapons of mass destruction. Then it was Iraq, Iran, North Korea, and in more recent times, John Bolton has added Syria, Libya, and Cuba. But the US aimed to wipe out any government that doesn't toe the line, has not been successful. And today, Dr. Tim Anderson will talk about the axis of resistance, Iran, Iraq, Syria and Lebanon. I didn't invent it. It's a name that was invented in the, the West Asian countries, or as they say, the Middle East in relation to Europe. I think when Bush talked about the axis of evil, he was talking about North Korea, 
Iraq and someone else, maybe Iran, something like that. So he was taking a bit more of a global view of it. But basically they were all independent countries that the U.S. didn't uh, dominate. And since then they've expanded that list somewhat. And you know, now, now they've got Venezuela and Nicaragua, they call some other sort of axis down there with Cuba. And, um, yeah, so they've called really the Washington uh, across different regimes, uh, Bush and Trump, have called any of the independent states um, some sort of evil regime. I think Reagan called the Soviet Union an evil, an evil empire at one stage too. So there's a there's this sort of uh, almost semi-religious sort of tradition in the U.S. of talking about their their rivals or independent states as evil. Well, the countries you want to talk about are Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon. Are they all working together, or are they working separately? And Palestine. Uh, I mean, the U.S. is trying its best to keep them separate. The, the main reason that the U.S. has demonised Iran so much, it's probably a mystery to a lot of people why the U.S. has demonised Iran so much. They talk about religion, but it's not really anything to do with religion. It's just that Iran is a big country in the region which helps the resistance, and I mean the armed resistance, in Palestine, in Lebanon, in Syria and in Iraq. And so it's a obstacle to the U.S. plan since at least the beginning of this century to dominate the entire region. The Bush regime called it a new Middle East region. So really there is coordination and, and that's what bothers the U.S. and its clients, Israel and Saudi Arabia, the most. The, the fact that there is coordination and there's a big state there, Iran, which is at least three times as big as any of the other states there in terms of population and capacity, and uh, it's playing a coordinating role. Talk about how did those different countries have resisted that in the past. I mean, we, we can see it happening, beginning to happen in Iran now, but Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, how have they resisted? Starting with Palestine, perhaps, because it's the oldest struggle there, that the resistance to ethnic cleansing of what's effectively a colony in Palestine, a European Jewish colony in Palestine, that resistance has been passive and active. You know, there's an expression in Arabic about passive resistance, which is that people simply remain. They stay on their land, and now there's more Arabs in Palestine than there are Jewish people, you know. So there's that demographic problem. There's a passive resistance there that people are simply not disappearing, going away, or, or, or dying. Then there's an active resistance, of course, and there's everyday active armed resistance in Palestine, which maybe doesn't get reported very much, but there's constant stone-throwing and sniping, and um, this is the problem of particularly of that particular nation of, of Palestine and of Israel, and Israel not accepting that Palestine exists. So there's that constant everyday tension. In Lebanon, in South Lebanon in particular, because of all of the Israeli invasions into South Lebanon, they developed something that's now called the resistance. I mean, the major element to it is the party called Hezbollah, which is a Shia religious party, but it's got a much wider network now, which they call the resistance because it's not really, you know, they, they include people from other communities, other religions in Lebanon. And then, so in context of Palestine, you've had this concept of the axis of resistance, which in one sense is, the, is a resistance to this expansion of Zionist state, which is occupying Lebanese territory, Palestinian territory, Syrian territory, and a constant source of aggravation and war in the region. And Iran's been a major sponsor of that. I mean, the thing with Iran, with Iraq, sorry, was that uh, Saddam Hussein, for much of his time, was collaborating with the U.S., for example, against Iran and against Syria, 
and only when he became a sort of a rogue element did the US decide to get rid of him. But then you've had resistance to the US invasion and more recently resistance to Daesh, to ISIS, the terrorist group that was created through Saudi Arabia to weaken Baghdad and try and stop Baghdad having close relations with, with Iran. So there's a very strong organic, common purpose, uh, neighbourly relationship going on between those countries. And of course, still in Syria, the fighting goes on. Yes, there's still... But it goes on because the proxy armies that the big powers have used there have really been defeated, and they only exist where there is an actual foreign occupation. So, for example, Turkey is occupying that northwest part of Syria, in Idlib, mainly in Idlib at the moment, and has stalled off the, the liberation of that final part of Syria. And the U.S. has been occupying some northeast and east and one southern part of, of Syria very strategically because the point there precisely is, well, on the one hand, it's giving shelter to the remaining proxy armies or terrorist groups, if you like, there. Daesh has been replaced by the SDF, which is a, a combination of different groups that the U.S. Has, has armed there, to try and prevent the, the complete liberation of Syria, but also, importantly, to stop the links, the transport and security and economic links between Iraq and Syria. You notice that the U.S. troops are positioned precisely on the borders of Iraq and Syria and preventing what they call, or what some of the, the Israeli and the U.S. intelligence uh, groups are calling an Iranian land bridge. What they mean by that is they, they are really in great fear of a very strong, let's say, superhighway between Tehran, Iraq, Syria and Lebanon in the coast. They, they call it a land bridge because it's something... They, they fear that sort of coordination. Israel fears it because it fears having a very strong coalition on its north-east borders where it occupies land belonging to Syria and, um, and belonging to Lebanon, for example, uh, and fears the recovery of that land, which the Syrians failed to do in 1973. But with an empowered Iran, that's one of the, reason, one of the main reasons why Tel Aviv obsesses so much about Iran. Do you see a strong resurgence of resistance in Iraq or has it been there all the time? There was resistance at first after the invasion, during and after the invasion, but then it lost a lot of its um, force and it recovered really with the, the rise of Daesh and with, when Daesh took over, I mean ISIS, that, that group that took over Mosul. And then there was a fatwa by one of the leading clerics, in, um, by the leading cleric in, in Iraq, calling on a, a popular mobilisation and there was a more or less a, a fairly spontaneous, very rapid mobilisation in 2014 from all of the communities, but because the biggest communities are Shia communities in, in um, Iraq, particularly amongst those, and some of them were also directly linked to the Iranian military and this is why the US has now reimposed sanctions on Iraq as well as on Iran and Syria and Lebanon and, and Palestine, of course, under its own sort of siege, Yemen under, Yemen under a siege too, because that resistance since 2014, uh, the popular mobilisation units, very similar in character to Hezbollah in uh, Lebanon, except for the fact that from the very beginning, the popular mobilisation units in Iraq were uh, recognised by the Iraqi state and indeed coordinated under the office of the Prime Minister in, in Baghdad. They've, it, it's harder. The US has tried to demonise these groups and say they're a, a Shia ISIS or a Shia Daesh, for example, but really they're extremely popular and they were, they were at the root of uh, Iraq being able to get rid of ISIS out of Mosul and out of those um, 
those western provinces, Anbar province in, in Iraq, just that the US is still in Iraq and sitting on the border there, also in Syria, uninvited in Syria. So the resistance in Iraq is quite a phenomenon. It, it drew on the model, if you like, of the, the volunteer, the volunteers in Iran that defended Iran when Saddam Hussein, with US backing, um, invaded Iran, and also on the model of uh, Hezbollah in, in Lebanon, which is rather more coherent and unified these days, because in Iraq you still have a number of different political groups and, and forces there, and so the, the PMUs in, in Iraq are, are very powerful, but they're not united in the same way as they are in Lebanon. And it wouldn't be an underestimation to say that Iran is a powerful nation, and maybe it's the, that the US is going to be stopped at Iran. Yeah, that's, as I said before, the US and Israel both obsess about the role of Iran because it is the, the large independent nation there. You had some other uh, large nations in the region like Egypt, but Egypt really lost its political will back in the 70s and is now financially dependent on Saudi Arabia. So Egypt, in a way, is not an enemy of the resistance countries, but and it's a big country, but it doesn't have the the independent political will and, and the capacity to play the sort of leading role that it probably did back in the 50s in the days of uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser. Similarly, Turkey is a similar-sized big country, but it's linked into NATO and it's got its own complexities, its own history in the region. So Iran, and it's not because of its um, religious character, it's because its capacity, its will, and the, the role that it plays in, in very fiercely defending the independent, its own independence and the independence of its allies in the region. Iran and Syria, for example, who, which have quite different systems. Syria is much more of a pluralist, pan-Arab ideology, and uh, Iran, of course, a Shia, hybrid religious democratic state. But they've been very strong allies since the beginning of the Iranian revolution, since 1979, because they saw common interests there. It's not that... Uh, Syria has no wish to become a, a religious state in, in that same sort of way, but nevertheless they've had very strong, uh, a strong alliance there since um, the last 40 years. And the role of Russia in that axis of resistance? So the role of Russia is an, as one as an important ally, and it's been debated a lot because the problem with Russia is twofold, really. One, Russia as a big power but not an imperial power in the same way as the U.S. You know, Russia has, what, three or four foreign military bases. The U.S. has 800 foreign military bases in 70 countries. So you can't compare them in terms of imperial powers. But nevertheless, Russia is a big power which has interests in the Middle East, but also in Europe, in having a strong relationship with Europe. And if you read uh, Brzezinski's book, the, the great, is it called The Global Chessboard, the idea of the U.S. trying to crippled the, the resurgence of Russia as a big power by blocking its links to Western Europe by controlling all of those Eastern European regimes. And you would have seen in recent times that the, in Ukraine, in Poland, there's been uh, attempts to block, and even through the North Sea, there's been attempts to block um, gas pipelines from Russia into, into Germany, for example. That's failed, but it shows that there's a very strong U.S game going on with Russia, trying to block Russia's positive, um, normal sort of commercial um, and strategic relationship with, with Europe, because it's, if there's a normal Russian relationship with Europe, what's the point of the US being in Europe and what's the point of NATO, for example? So Russia has some other ambitions in the, re in, in the world apart from the Middle East. In the Middle East, Russia's main priority has been, or the main stated priority has been to 
defeat terrorism before it comes to Russia, because Russia has its own experience of Islamist sectarian terrorism, also supported by some of the Gulf monarchies, and particularly the Saudis, in the Caucasus, for example, in Chechnya. It's experience that's reached into Moscow to a terrible experience of terrorism. So on the one hand, there's that. On the other hand, there is a strategic alliance in terms of U.S. influence in the region because if the U.S. has demonstrated that it wants to exclude Russia as far as possible from important economic relationships and China too. The U.S. views with great jealousy the role of China, the role of Russia, and to some extent the role of, of a, a, a more independent Western Europe too. So Russia's got other games going on. It comes in as an ally. It came in as a very strong ally to Syria and has developed a much better relationship with Iran. But the fly in the ointment is that it has a strong relationship with Israel too. And there is a big difference between Russia and the Middle Eastern Axis countries, which all see Israel as effectively a a type of cancer in the region that is the root cause of conflict in the region for the last 70 years because it's stealing Arab land, it's stealing Palestinian land, it's stealing Lebanese and Syrian land and it's conspiring against those those states. Israel, for example, is an is a open sponsor of most of the, the terror groups in, in Syria because it has an interest in keeping Syria divided and weak and keeping Syria divided from its neighbours. So there's an essential interest there which is shared by Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon and important sections of Palestine, which Russia does not share. So it's an important ally, I would say, to the Axis, but it's not really a member for those reasons. And of course you can't talk about resistance to US imperialism without mentioning Cuba. Yes, well then we see the whole parallel process has been laid out in Latin America for really two centuries and Latin Americans uh, including Cuba, notably including Cuba but also Venezuela and Bolivia and Nicaragua have very long histories of talking about the necessity of an alliance or what Jose Martí called in the 1880s the trees have to form ranks so the giant, the seven league boots doesn't pass between us. We'll say the Latins even in the 19th century saw the role of Spain and then uh, after Spain the US as a, a huge force which was going to typically try and divide them and dominate them by dividing them and so the need for unity was spoken of in many Latin American traditions in Central America, in Cuba, in Venezuela, through the continent and that's why the late Hugo Chavez with Fidel Castro and others managed to put together some very big regional almost continental organizations basically the SALAC, UNASUR and so on. So the Latins have had their own experience of resistance in that sort of way and, and in the Middle East you have a similar sort of deployment except that of course the Middle East a hundred years ago was recolonized. The, the French and the British took over from the Ottoman Empire and divided up those states and in that colonial context of course the, the notion of the Zionist colony was, was created in, in the colonial era. And one of the main, the main reasons why it's such a, a sore point now is that no one accepts um, colonies these days, the logic of colonies, the racism of colonies. And so we've ended up with this uh, apartheid state in, in Palestine and, and little sign of recognising that there are democratic rights for Palestinian people that, that live on their own land there. So in some respects the Middle East is behind Latin America there, but 
the, the notion of coming together, of forming an alliance, cooperating very closely as the only way really to exclude the ambitions of the big powers is settling in. And we saw fairly recently, a month or so ago in Damascus, a, a trio basically of the military leaders of Iran, Iraq and Syria in Damascus making a show of uh, not just their security cooperation, which is, um, you know, the world has seen in the last few years. It was because of that cooperation and the role of Russia that uh, Syria has been able to roll back the, the war against it and similarly in Iraq, but also the idea of commercial cooperation, that the future of these these countries, which have been held back, they've been held back precisely because of the role of the US and its agents, Israel and, and the Saudis, constantly trying to divide people, prevent them coming together. Now the very idea the idea that Tel Aviv and Washington fear of a, what they call a, an Iranian land bridge, but what anyone else would call a, a superhighway of, of commerce, of, of rail, of transport means, of communications and so on, precisely between Tehran through Baghdad, Damascus to the coast to Beirut, is precisely what they need for the future. In effect, in effect it, it should and, and probably will become an arm of the, the great Chinese project, the Belt and Road Infrastructure Project, to Europe, which the US opposes that, of course, also. So resistance is alive and well? The resistance is a natural human thing in my way of looking at things, that people form their own social structures and when some outside body comes in and destroys them, we human beings are like ants, more or less. We rebuild the colony constantly when it's destroyed and that's the way I see uh, imperialism and resistance. Resistance, that's why you can... For example, jump in and talk about Cuba and Latin America in, in the same breath as talking about the, the resistance in the Middle East. And how do you believe Venezuela will go in the next few months? Well, Venezuela's rallied really behind uh, President Maduro, behind the government there. They've rallied despite their problems. They've seen a, a, an enormous threat, uh, a cr very crude threat, of, I, I guess, also in the style of the realist side of what they call the realist or sometimes the conservative side of US politics. They, like the Bush the Bush regime, the Trump regime, talks very bluntly and directly about what they want and try and push people out of the way when they resist it, basically. But that sort of crudity makes mobilisation much more easy. So even though Venezuela has some enormous economic problems, they're not starving to death, as is said in the US media. They have rallied. They've rallied much more support behind the government than the US has been able to do through through their their designated puppet. Indeed, that puppet Guaido has really pretty much lost any momentum that he had in Venezuela. Uh, he's going to go the way of many other previous puppets they tried to install there. You know, it's not that long ago, but maybe people forget these sorts of things. The Bush regime in Washington, what was it, 15 years ago, installed a transition coordinator for, for Cuba. They had this guy in Washington, everyone forgets his name now, but he was um, installed as a transition coordinator as though the, the Bush regime was going to install a new government in Cuba. Well, it never happened. In Venezuela, there was a guy they call Carmona the Brief, Pedro Carmona, Carmona el Breve, because he was installed as the president of Venezuela in 2002 when they had that coup against Chavez, which was popularly overthrown within 48 hours. So... This Carmona Guaido, the, whatever his name was, who was the transition coordinator for Cuba, people should read a little history and see how many times these operations have been tried and how many times they've failed precisely because of resistance. Just finally, Tim, the government of Ecuador has been richly rewarded for 
betraying Julian Assange? Well, yes. I'm not sure whether a $4 billion debt is a reward, but anyway... Well, that's course, what they um, wanted, wasn't it? Yeah. They were, uh, well, Moreno was after that. Remember, Moreno was this guy who was elected on the basis that he would carry forward the same program as the popular Rafael Correa. And he reversed, uh, after being elected, sacked all of the uh, the people he called Correistas, you know, the ministers that he had and so on, turned around and tried to re-establish the military and economic links with, with the U.S. again. So he's widely regarded as a traitor. His name is becoming the word for traitor in Latin America now. And there's a big movement within Ecuador as well as without now. Really, he destroyed the, the political party that he was part of, and they had to create a new party, and that new party is resurgent now, but it seems like part of the deal for the IMF loan of, what was it, 4.2 billion US dollars, was getting rid of um, Julian Assange, handing him over to the US effectively, um, with some fake guarantees that they weren't going to impose a death penalty on him. We'll see what happens with those sorts of um, with what those guarantees are worth, but yeah, it's a great tragedy in Ecuador, really, because there were tremendous advances. I was visiting there, studying across the last decade, the advances under the Correa government. I, I hope that a lot of that, uh, that not all of that is going to be rolled back and destroyed. There were, there were tremendous advances in public health and public education, infrastructure, renewable energy and so on. Um, and uh, it would be very sad if all of that was rolled back. But that's the, that's the strategic problem. Also, when you have a, a reactionary administration, effectively, that um, you, you can not just damage your own people, you can damage the region, you can, you can inflict damage on, on other peoples as well. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Jan. And that was Dr. Tim Anderson. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. The consequences of the ISDS component of free trade agreements has reared its ugly head again in Australia. That's the Investor State Disputes Settlement, a system through which investors can sue countries for allegedly discriminatory practices. This time it's a Florida-based company, APR Energy. And I'm speaking to activist Peter Murphy. Peter, how does this case under the Australia-US Free Trade Agreement compare with the earlier one with Philip Morris? Uh, Well, I think this one is even more tenuous. So uh, the Philip Morris case, Philip Morris claimed that it was actually a Hong Kong company and used an agreement between Hong Kong and Australia to sue the government. And it was found after those five years, I think, uh, that it, it wasn't a Hong Kong company. So the, that issue that uh, it had been treated wrongly was never, ever actually addressed. Uh, whereas with the, the, this uh, American mining company, its, it's problem is like Philip Morris. It, it, it's an American company and uh, there's no provision for... Uh, investor state dispute settlement in the US Australia free trade agreement but there is a, a more general uh, provision in this and all the agreements of uh, most favored nation 
treatment. They're trying to argue that even though that the US agreement doesn't allow them to sue, because Australia has allowed that for investors from other countries in other agreements, then it should have the same right. I think this one also will go nowhere and uh, it's possibly uh, launched without any intention of it, it proceeding into a tribunal, but uh, for some other pressure purposes. So um, I, I think it's it's a ludicrous claim, like the Philip Morris one, even but more ludicrous. And uh, and yet it's it's demonstrating to anyone looking that companies uh, look to this investor state dispute settlement uh, provision to you know green mail. It's a, it's, a, it's a form of uh, extortion or something like that is a way to look at it. That they don't have to do anything, but they can get millions of dollars. We know about the one in El Salvador. How many others are there that you know of? In terms of Australia? Not necessarily Australia, no. I think now the latest figures coming from the uh, uh, United Nations Conference on Trade and Development is there's over 940 cases afoot or have, have happened using ISDS since 1995. You know, back then it was it was like a hundred or something like that. Now, now it's nine hundred. It's actually an expanding expanding area of international litigation. Fortunately, you know, uh, I think because of the you know, persistent, tenacious campaigning by Australians to stop these provisions, even even up until today, we, we don't have a provision whereby U.S. companies can sue Australia. And I think this is, you know, a very important achievement, even even though, you know, we in the trade justice sector feel very embattled, you know, we're continuously fighting one after another of these things. We so far have avoided the most dangerous area because it's US corporations which are the ones who use this most. We, we are, I think sadly we do have an effective agreement with ISTS uh, now with Canada, which is also very litigious. Its mining companies are very much prone to suing as well. So I, I would expect some really serious trouble from Canadian investors because of our being in the, this uh, revised Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. When did this ISDS provision come into being? Has it always been there or is it something uh, new? It's new in the sense that... Uh, it's always been something recognised probably for hundreds of years about expropriation, but especially since World War II when there was a, a, a decolonisation processes and a lot more states were created, then uh, there had to be some kind of arrangements about the, you know, the metropolitan power which had so many investments in these former colonies. There, there were uh, agreements about, you know, if, you, if there's any expropriation, there has to be proper compensation. But that's really an argument about, national, you know, if somebody nationalises uh, assets, which has happened, you know, in the oil industry, especially also in the mining industry. Uh, in the 1970s and 80s, and especially in the 1990s, the so-called jurisprudence, the, the legal thinking about this provision on expropriation got radically expanded to indirect expropriation. So this is where you know, no, no, there's no nationalisation at all. It's simply a law changes or a policy changes and that um, you know, has some impact on the operations of the investor. Of course, you know, this, that's the normal part of life. Say in Australia, every business in Australia has to cope with the fact that the company tax rate goes up or down or some other excise is, 
is charged on some input or some higher standard is imposed for health and safety reasons. None of of the Australian companies have the right to sue the Australian government over a thing like that. But a foreign investor under one of these special agreements would have the right under this idea of indirect expropriation. And there's another expansion of the, the thinking. It's called fair and equitable treatment. You know, it sounds very bland. So the foreign company, it's, it's got its business going and the, and the government does something that affects it and it says, well, we weren't consulted and uh, that's not fair and equitable. Therefore, we're going to sue you. I think, um, again, people would roll their eyes in Australia if uh, they thought every Australian business had the right to do that. So it's really a grand elevation of the rights of a company, a group of investors, over the rights of a democratically elected government to constitutionally operate. That's that's really going to the heart of this problem of ISDS. And how difficult would it be to get rid of this provision out of the free trade agreements? It can be hard, but I think uh, there's two levels of it. So there, there are these free trade agreements where... There's a chapter on investment, and that chapter includes these ISDS provisions. And so you can't just uh, simply withdraw from one chapter of an agreement you've signed. You would have to withdraw from the whole agreement. Now, where it's a bilateral, say, between Australia and Singapore, there's such a thing, you could still basically give notice. It's often just six months' notice that you're going to withdraw from the agreement. Um, or you could go to, to the Singapore government and say, well, we um, don't really want to have this ISDS anymore. We find it repugnant. And if you would agree, you know, we can both sign an, a side agreement that that no longer applies in this agreement. In some of the recent negotiations, like with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, New Zealand did this. There was all of these chapters and there's the ISDS in there but New Zealand was able to to negotiate side agreements with most of the countries, not all of them but most of them that this wouldn't apply to them companies wouldn't be suing their government and their companies wouldn't be suing the New Zealand government. So that's one way to deal with it. There's this other more general level where there's these things called bilateral investment treaties BITs they call them and and there's a lot of these and they're, they're only about investment and and they're mainly about you know that the governments involved can uh, have disputes with each other and a company can sue a government and uh, these are easy to get rid of and you know India I think Argentina Chile uh, South Africa Indonesia have have all been cancelling these BITs in the last 10 years because they've been sued in this absolutely outrageous way mainly by mining companies and where is the campaign to clean all this up? Well, we've now been battling away. Uh, the, I suppose the TPP struggle, which was one, the, most, the most intense we've had in Australia since the US-Australia Free Trade Agreement, ended in a sort of an explosion because the Labor members of Parliament in the end voted for the TPP uh, despite their policy opposing ISDS. So... Due to campaigning earlier in this, uh, say in the period around, it's hard to really recall, around 2010, 2011, there was already reviews in Australia by the Productivity Commission as well as by our sort of campaigns that ISDS was, you know, absolutely against the uh, Australian interest. 
and the Labor Party was in government at that time and adopted a policy of no more ISDS. That delayed things like the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement and a couple of others, but Labor stuck to the policy, and it was its policy, and yet it voted for it in the TPP. Uh, allegedly, they say, because, oh, well, this was a geopolitical issue, you know, even though the United States was no longer in the TPP, the US wants these sorts of things, and, you know, we shouldn't be against it. The explosion, though, from the trade union uh, members of the Labor Party and a lot of Labor Party uh, members were so fierce. Uh, I think Bill Shorten and uh, Penny Wong and the others just didn't know what hit them. In December last year at their national conference, the Labor Party adopted a far more uh, stringent approach. And there, there will be not only no new agreements with ISDS in them, but ISDS will be removed from all existing agreements. As I said to you at the start, it, it can be hard to negotiate that in one like the TPP after it's all been signed, but that's Labor's policy. We, we of course, know from, from the fact that they did vote for the TPP anyway that um, it, it will be a struggle to make them implement that policy, but I think we're in a far better position to, to see that through in the, in the coming period if Labor gets uh, to become the new government. I think we're at a high point in the campaign, but we certainly haven't had a decisive win on this. Um, but it can be done by a government which has got a clear commitment, which the population understands to be there, and, uh, and the people will back up a government that faces you know, difficulties in trying to implement such a policy. And that's the problem, isn't it, to get the general population to understand it? It's a very complicated issue. It is, you know, and uh, there's, way, you know, there's sort of different circles of people aware of what it is. But uh, because we've been campaigning on this issue for over 20 years in Australia, there are now many organisations and quite a lot of people who do know about ISDS and are very opposed to it. Uh, we, we always find, you know, new groups of people come to us and uh, sort of angrily accusing us of failing to inform them about these things. But uh, that all of these trade agreements are negotiated in secret and it's, it's you know, really a malevolent sort of uh, reality that the governments who want these things, ISDS, etc., are, are militantly keeping it secret from the people. You know, so we, we have, always have to overcome that. But uh, as I said, I think that the explosion that happened um, in the Labor Party last November demonstrated we've, we've reached a new critical mass. It's, and we, we obviously need more and more people to really grasp this issue, but a lot of people do uh, who are able to have an impact on government. So uh, we're going to keep on building on that because we now have two more agreements afoot you know, being negotiated, which one of which uh, is the uh, Europe, European Union-Australia Free Trade Agreement, where at the European side they also have decided that ISDS is, is not tenable. And that's not because their negotiators don't want it, actually. It's because the European Court of Justice has found that it's illegal in European law to, to demand that the European states be bound by this. So it's uh, good for us that, that the, uh, there's a living example of a free trade agreement where ISDS is not part of it. But the other one is the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which is with 15 other countries in our region, but including China and India, Japan and South Korea, 
and the 10 ASEAN countries and New Zealand. So, there, the, again, none of these countries except Japan is likely to have corporations who would sue. But we do fear that South Korean uh, mining companies could sue. And uh, we already have a separate agreement with South Korea which has ISDS in it. Uh, that was signed under the Turnbull government or even the Abbott government. And so we're, we're alert to the danger of a, a mining-based one. We have got the Adani uh, controversy and uh, there is a bilateral investment treaty with India which would uh, cover Adani's investments up to March 2017. And so we, we think that that's a, a living factor in the Adani debate and one of the reasons why the Labor is so equivocal in their comments on this really outrageous project. There's still more to come. These are going to all be very, um, you know, big tests of uh, uh, our movement and our campaign and, and will be big tests for the Labor Party um, in, in terms of implementing its policy, which is clearly now against some of the chapters which are being proposed in the RCEP. You have a web page or a Facebook page? Yes, I think uh, there's really good information on these issues at the uh, Australian Fair Trade and Investment Network webpage and it's uh, aftinet.org.au. Thank you, Peter. Okay, thank you very much, Jan. And once again, that is Peter Murphy. He has lots of hats, does Peter. Great job he does too. It's um, 28 minutes past five. In a moment, we'll be hearing about um, a commemoration for the ending of the Civil War in Sri Lanka 10 years ago. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots. You know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the Dots. 3CR Community Radio, you got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, we're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by Neil Mitchell. This made Tamils in Sri Lanka and around the world will remember the still unknown number of their friends, families and neighbours who were killed or disappeared at the end of the brutal conflict between the Sri Lankan government and the LTTE the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam. Today we go back in history for an understanding of this long and bloody conflict. And with me is researcher Umesh Perin and Iagan. Can we go back to Ceylon? It was known then. It was a colony of Britain until it gained independence in 1948. What was the ethnic makeup of the colony prior to independence? There's four ethnic groups identified in the in the census currently. One is from the Tamil-speaking traditional Tamil-speaking homelands in the northeast, from which there's the Tamils, or you could say indigenous Tamils, the Muslims, who are generally Tamil-speaking Muslims, 
but they consider themselves a separate ethnic group. But then the British in the 1860s from neighbouring South India, they brought another group of Tamils to the centre of the island to work in the uh, plantation industry. So when the British left in 1948, they left a parliamentary system in which all these different communities had electoral representatives. But one of the first moves that the the new government did was to disenfranchise the upcountry Tamils or the Indian Tamils. And so they were virtually made stateless through a a series of pieces of legislation of of the one million that were there. Could that have been predicted? There were tensions before that, and when the British were writing a constitution or leaving the island with a constitution, Tamil representatives had expressed their concerns about being dominated by the the Singhala community. And so the British left the island with a constitution that said no, no law that could be passed which benefited or negatively affected one community over the other. That clause in the Constitution was supposed to protect the numerically smaller groups on the island compared to the Sinhalese community, but... The Sinhalese ignored that once they got into power? Well, and the British did as well. So, for example, this this legislation, which clearly disenfranchised this one community, was challenged in the courts, and it went to the Privy Council. And so the Privy Council was still the highest court of Ceylon until 1972 and the Privy Council decided that that law disenfranchising that the series of laws that disenfranchise that community did not violate the constitution when clearly it clearly it did so the British also ignored that and what were those laws that disenfranchised the minority groups so that specific law disenfranchising the community that was brought to the British to work in the tea plantations. I think that was 1948-49. After that, then they changed the language law, and and prior to the independence, there had been some sort of consensus between Tamil and Sinhala speakers that Tamil and Sinhalese would both become the official languages of the island, rather than English, which only a small minority of the elite uh, of the island spoke but instead of making both Tamil and Singhala the official languages, in 1956 they made Singhala the only official language. And how did that disenfranchise the Tamils and the others as well by having that singular language? So the Singhalese language meant all the non-Singhala speakers were obviously at a disadvantage in government employment and access to the courts and other government services, for example. But getting back to your point of... What were these tensions there before the British left? Yes, in that various academics have, have looked into it and, and activists have said that actually that this idea of singular Buddhist chauvinism, which is the idea that the Sinhalese Buddhists, the entire island was sort of bestowed upon them. That idea was fostered and created under British colonial rule to further their own, the British, British's interest. So that those ideas then were sort of unboxed after the British formally left the island when it became the dominion of Ceylon. And what did it actually mean for the minority groups in terms of education, in terms of health, in terms of employment, in terms of or just living? What did it mean? There was a, st- a steep reduction 
of the number of Tamils employed in the civil service, who I think particularly the lower grades, and and that was also a, a bone of contention that there was a disproportionate number of Tamils uh, in the civil service in education, university. They also there was like a large percentage of Tamils in that, but there was another set of legislation passed later that would then um, try to reduce the number of Tamils. It was called a standardization, which meant that Tamils to get into the same university courses would have to score higher points than Sinhalese. I think this was in the 70s. A series of, of measures taken in which the Tamil community got disenfranchised. Well, what was left for the Tamil community in terms of education and employment? Because if they're losing those jobs in the mm. public service, where did they work? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, when the government brought it, brought in these measures, there were protests by Tamil representatives and they were violently suppressed. And so increasingly the Tamils had demanded autonomy in their traditional northeast homelands um, from the government. So this became an increasingly strident demand. First it took took place of a, of a federal state uh, and then later an independent state, which was endorsed in the elections in 1976, I think. And that immediately following that, there was a, there was a pogrom, an island-wide pogrom against the Tamils, seemingly in response to this electoral mandate. Is that when many Tamils left Sri Lanka? Because we have a Tamil population here in Melbourne, an older population. Mm. Is that when they left? And for those well, reasons? Maybe the biggest wave of migration. There were mig- previous migrations earlier on. For example, there were, there were riots in, uh, or anti-Tamil pogrom in 1958, and people left then. There's an author called uh, Sivananand who wrote a famous book called When Memory Dies. Uh, he left in 1958, went to the UK. But I think in Australia... The, a lot of people would have come in the 80s, um, especially after 1983, which was the largest anti-Tamil pogrom where people say around 3,000 Tamils were killed and many uh, Tamil businesses uh, were destroyed, etc. So again, I think it was the context was at that stage, many of the Tamil youth were um, had taken up arms and there was sort of a fledgling uprising. So at that point, there were various attacks uh, happening against police and other security forces in the northeast. But, yeah, so I think it was just one, it was just a larger scale civilian retaliatory attack by government forces that had happened leading up to that point. Um, and this was just a, just a very large example of that. The LTTE, the, the Tamil Tigers, What's their history? Where do they come from and how long back in history? Well, the forerunner to, the, to that organisation was, I think, the Tamil New Tigers, and they said they formed on, on the same day that the, that the new constitution, which pro- proclaimed Ceylon, Sri Lanka in 1972, that constitution uh, enshrined Singular only, uh, Singhalese is the only official language, put a special place for Buddhism in the constitution, etc., uh, so I think they formed around then in the 70s, early 70s. There were there were various different groups, many groups, but they only sort of formed into a larger organisation in the 80s. 
And where did their support come from? Was it India? I think at the beginning it was they were just domestic organizations. Later uh, in the 80s, the Indian government started supporting um, various different groups. So the LTT was one group. There was another group called the Elam People's Revo- Revolutionary Liberation Front, another one called the People's Liberation Organization of Tamil Elam. So I think there were about four or five numerous groups, and they were all trained by India at that point. But then in 1987, India decided to intervene on the island, and they sent a peacekeeping force, uh, which at its peak had 100,000 troops. And so that, that period between 1987 and 1990, uh, the Indian government had a presence on the island. They weren't taking sides with one or the other? Were they independent? So I think the Indian government had a preference for which militant group that they wanted to back, and they didn't want to back the Tamil Tigers. So I think there was, there was another group that they were backing. So it, it ended up that the Tamil Tigers ended up fighting the Indian peacekeeping force. And I think the Indian peacekeeping force was widely disliked in the Tamil homeland uh, for the abuses that they committed. And there were a lot of other com- countries who were trying to broker peace between the Tamils and the, and the Sri Lankans too, wasn't there, over that time? There were right. attempts at peace? As far as I know, the only real substantive peace process began in, two th- in the 2000s. So there were, previous to that, there were various attempts. There was a conference in Bhutan where all the different groups um, came and had, had negotiations. But it wasn't until 2000 when a serious peace process began uh, that actually had, a proce- uh, had some prospect of success. We're talking about anniversary of 2009. What was happening between 2000 and 2009 that it led to such a bloody ending? The context of the beginning of the peace process was the LTT um, had a number of military victories or, or managed to defeat the Sri Lankan government's advances against LTT-held territory. And as a consequence of that, the Sri Lankan government accepted the LTT's offer to go into peace talks. And at this point, the international community or various international states appeared to uh, support this process. There was the Norwegians were involved um, as a key group. And then the United States, Japan, the EU were co-chairs of this peace process. Uh, and the ceasefire agreement was, was officially signed in 2002. And that included ex-military personnel from the Scandinavian countries were stationed in the northeast in the Tamil Tiger held areas as peace monitors to observe this uh, ceasefire agreement. And then there were various rounds of talks to try and come to some negotiated solution. I'm just wondering why so many countries around the world were concerned about peace in a little island at the south of India. What was in it for them? So people say that the the island is in a very significant geostrategic, um, if that's the right term, area. Most of the oil that goes to China and Japan passes through Sri Lanka, and then there's a there's a port there, Trincomalee, in the eastern province, or the north it used to be the northeastern province, which is a very important deep water port. Uh, historically, has been seen as a very significant uh, military or strategic asset 
so these these factors are seen as 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 why it's seen as an important island. Is there any estimate of how many people lost their lives between, say, 1983 and 2009? I know it escalated after right. that, but is it known how many people might have lost their lives in those intervening years? So I don't think it's been looked into in a in great deal of accuracy. If you look at like the BBC, they'll say uh, 100,000 people died or something, but that seems to be the same estimate as which they had before 2009. For the 2009 period, we know, like I think, in a quite accurate way because the entire area uh, controlled by the LTT, there was a head count by the local government agent. And then after the conflict ended, all of the people in the remaining LTT-controlled area were brought into these camps controlled by the government. And so there was a head count by the UN so the difference between those two head counts is 146,000 people missing. So for the period between January 2009 or, or December 2008 and May 2009, in those few months, there's 146,000 people, 146,000 Tamils are missing. What I really meant was in that earlier period between mm-hmm. 1983 and 2000, there was... Fighting all through that time. Is there mm-hmm. any estimate of how many people lost their lives over that period? Would have been substantial? Yeah, it would be substantial. And I, I think the question hasn't been answered accurately. There was actually, yeah, so th- there have been a number of conflicts on the island. There have also been two uprisings in the south amongst the Sinhalese youth. There are some estimates for that. For this national liberation war that Tamil uh, Tigers were fighting, there have been a few people who have tried to document the various killings and massacres, but I don't think it's it's been formally... Uh, anyone's formally tried to estimate um, what those numbers are. Um, there was one study based on a WHO survey um, of violent war deaths, but it didn't really dis- differentiate between where on the island they died and what their ethnic groups were, etc. So it's kind of um, something... That needs to be um, figured out, but at least so if one hundred and forty six thousand people died in the in the last phase, and prior to that newspapers were saying one hundred thousand at least two hundred and fifty thousand or why was it such a bloody four or five months two thousand and nine leading up to may what brought that on it was so violent mm. so destructive this has been documented in a in a few reports. So the UN put out a report in 2011. Uh, It was another report in 2014. And it's been documented in some films, uh, a film put put out by Channel 4 in the UK called Sri Lanka's Killing Fields, and a subsequent version of that is called No Fire Zone, which uh, is being screened here in Melbourne uh, on Saturday. But basically the government instructed civilians to congregate in no-fire zones and subsequently bombed those no-fire zones. And they also bombed virtually every hospital or any uh, medical facility in in that area that Tamil Tigers controlled. And they did the no-fire zones. They announced three no-fire zones, each of them, which they subsequently bombarded, which only had civilians and no military targets. So most of the killings occurred because of the government shelling by air, land and sea onto these no fire zones which the government had declared 
And where were the LTTE fighters during that time? Were most of them killed or were they all killed? Yeah, I think a significant number were killed, but after the defeat, then, then they were all taken away. Some of them were summarily executed. Some people went through rehabilitation, quote-unquote, camps. All the senior leadership were killed, but the lower-level people may have lived and went through these rehabilitation, uh, put in these rehabilitation camps. Is it known what happened in those camps? There's some documentation from various human rights groups of various abuses that people suffered during during those. But um, And how long were they kept there? Is it known? Well, so there are some people who are still missing. Their relatives are asking where they are. So that, that's, one of, was, that's been one of the campaigns since the end of the war. Our relatives of people who had surrendered to the, to the Sri Lankan army and subsequently they've never heard from them since. And there are also questions about whether there are secret camps still in existence that the government is running, uh, which they haven't disclosed. Well, once the war was over, the, the government rounded up the Tamil populations and put them into well, what people call concentration camps. I'm not quite sure what the government called them, detention camps. What were the conditions for those people and how many were rounded up? So I think it was something like 300,000 or 250,000 people were in these camps at least for six months. Uh, some of them were there for numerous years and there have been documented cases of torture, sexual violence, rape, death from disease. They were very overcrowded. So most, most of them were in the, the northeast area, but they had initially been constructed by the UN as internally displaced camps. But I think, yeah, so there were a number around around the northeast, but then I think over time they were consolidated into one major camp was called Menek Farm. What did the government think they were going to do with these people? I mean, you can't round up a population and keep them in an internment camp forever. What did they plan on doing, letting them go, and what are they going to do? Their, their yeah. land has been destroyed, I'd imagine. Their homes are destroyed. Their, their, their crops are mm. destroyed. What, what were they going to do? They claim that the reason was demining. They had some, some, some ex- excuse not to let them go, but they would subsequently the, the people have uh, been released, but some of their land has been taken over by, by military. There are now a lot of military bases in the northeast. Most of the Sri Lankan military is based in the northeast. Two thirds of the army, which has grown in size since since 2009, and I think is one one of the larger armies in the world. Some 200, 300,000 troops, the majority of which are stationed in the northeast. And so, some of the people who have been released from these camps are still fighting to get their ancestral lands back. Uh, so th- they can resume some norm- normalcy. So are, are the military farming the, the land, or are they just the land's not being farmed properly now? Yeah, so that in some cases the military has taken over farming land and they are doing the farming in those areas. Uh, in some cases I've heard that uh, they're using ex-LTT carders as, uh, as a form of labour, forcing them into, into, these, uh, into this work yeah. And in a situation like that, you're going to find people wanting to escape, and that's 
then you come to the asylum seekers. So is there, is there any estimate of how many people have escaped or tried to escape right. and what happened to those who didn't make it? We don't know, do we? At least for Australia, I've looked at the, the numbers and so between 2009 and 13, when they started turning the boats around, around 10,000 people came to Australia. Uh, the vast majority would have been Tamils. The government has deported quite a few of them. I think Julia Gillard, for example, started this, um, or I'm not sure if it was Julia Gillard or Kevin Rudd, started the enhanced screening process, which meant as soon as an arrival came, they were given 15 minutes or something to explain their case. And if they didn't raise something that might qualify as a refugee, they were deported back straight to the Sri Lankan government. Over a thousand people deported through that process, but there are still a lot of people came to Australia. They're either some of them have been granted refugee status, others have been rejected, and they're appealing uh, their cases in the courts. I think it was 2010 it began the ACO uh, negative ACO. I'm not sure of the exact date, but around 50 people, uh, most of them were Tamils, were given these negative security clearances. Uh, and they were never really told why. Uh, one could presume it's for some association with the LTT. Some of them got given refugee status, but because of the negative security clearance, their refugee status was removed. Um, but subsequently, all of those people had their ACO clearance lifted. Now they're only beginning to go through the refugee process. So I don't know if you've heard about this uh, social enterprise called Tamil Feasts, which is in... Uh, Fitzroy, most of the chefs were in detention for some six years given because of this ACO clearance, and then they've had it lifted, and now they're only going, beginning the process to have their refugee status reconsidered after they were given it in the first place. So there are lots of Tamils in Australia who are in a, in a state of limbo awaiting some sort of results. Has anyone been able to track what happened to those who were forcibly sent back? There have been some groups that have tried to do that. There's one group in uh, the UK, Freedom From Torture, and they've done a a number of interviews uh, with asylum seekers who have left recently and documented the abuse that they've suffered. And on a number of occasions, those people have been people who have been returned and were tortured and then subsequently managed to escape. And there was another group called ITJP, International Truth and Justice Project. They they did a study mainly based on the testimony of asylum seekers that had had left the country and came to Europe. So so some of some of these groups have been able to document on the basis of people who have subsequently escaped. But in terms of people who have gone back, I, I don't know if there's a systematic or anyone has the um, capacity or the resources to to do that. How are you commemorating 2009, the Tamil people in Australia? There will be memorials uh, around Australia and various community halls. In Melbourne, uh, another group is is doing a um, demonstration on the 15th of May calling for the end of uh, the military occupation of the Tamil homelands. It's a slightly different take on the the commemoration. Uh, There's also... Uh, a number of screenings of this film, No Fire Zone, which are being organised around Melbourne. So there's a screening uh, coming up on the 4th of May, 
6.45, doors open at the RMIT Cinema. That's in downtown Melbourne. There's also a screening on the 2nd of May at Tamil Feasts is doing a screening. Just finally, how do Tamil people in Melbourne, I know there are a lot, how do they cope with the fact that with the government that's got that's got in Sri Lanka now and they've had for quite a while, that these people will never be able to return to their homeland? They must have, mm. There must be relatives maybe still there, friends from when yep. they were children or growing up? Difficult question. Yeah, so for, for example, my parents uh, went to New Zealand in 1983 after this uh, Black July attack and they didn't go back for 20 years, uh, even though my father has a sister in Jaffna in the north. His other brother hadn't travelled to Jaffna, even though he lived in Colombo for, for 20 years either. So the peace, actually, the beginning of the peace process was uh, the beginning of a lot of Tamils tra- travelling back uh, when they never had before. So there was a lot of hope around that period. Subsequently, uh, people have been travelling back after the end of the war, but again, there's still a lot of fear about um, what might happen to you. Uh, if you've been politically involved, you might have extra questions about whether or not you should be travelling there. And then there's the white vans. Yes. So uh, historically, a lot of uh, abductions have happened in white vans. So, so there's a phenomenon people call the white vans. There have been reports of these abductions still happening. Again, if you look at that International Truth and Justice Project, they've documented numerous cases of this happening since 2009. How important do you believe it is to have two Tamil programs on 3CR, one in your Tamil language and one in English? The original idea of the English language program was to try and speak to the wider Australian community whether or not that's the effect or we've been success, it's been successful in communicating to people. I guess that, that was the hope with the, um, the show. And the long-running Tamil Voice program, its importance to the community? Similarly, it's an uh, important uh, space to talk about these issues in a way that is, is not possible on other commercial radio stations and the openness of 3CR, um, the activist uh, tradition uh, has has allowed Tamils to, to have a voice where they otherwise couldn't. And that was Yomesh, a researcher from the Tamil community, speaking about the anniversary, or can't call it an anniversary, it's a commemoration for the, the ending of the Civil War in 2009. This is the film. It's this Saturday. Before the government started turning back boats in 2013, around 10,000 Tamils arrived seeking refuge in Australia, fleeing from the Sri Lankan government. On Saturday, 4th of May, we invite you to a film screening of No Fire Zone. 
at 6.45pm at RMIT Cinema Theatre. The cinema is located at Building 80, 455 Swanston Street, opposite the RMIT tram stop. This award-winning documentary about the war helps answer why Tamils fled to places like Australia and why it is not safe for them to return. This event is co-hosted by Tamil Refugee Council and Dr Liam Ward from RMIT's School of Media and Communication, supported by 3CR. Subscribe now at 3cr.org.au. And that's all for me for today, but I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. But do stay tuned for Dumb by Law. Bye for now.